Thank you, Nick. Let me invite you uh, this morning to open your Bible to the book of Jude. Jude is the book right before the book of Revelation. And God willing, we will bring our look at the book of Jude to a close this morning. If uh, you don't have a Bible with you, there might be one under the chair in front of you. Dial it up on your phone if you need to, but uh, do look at it so you can follow along with the message today. There's an outline on the back of your bulletin that you can use as well. So let me begin our uh, let me begin by reading our passage, and that is Jude 17 through 25. Jude 17 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by, by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. This is God's inerrant and uh, inspired word. He breathed these words out through his, uh, through his apostles. And uh, let's give our attention to what the Word says today. Let's uh, ask for God's help as, as we do this. Lord, I pray for your Spirit to help us today, both to hear and for me to speak uh, the truth. Lord, unclog our ears from the deception of the world we live in, uh, the distractions of, of a busy Mother's Day. Let us focus uh, on what your word has to say, what you have to say through your word, by your spirit. God, let us hear your voice this morning. Christ Jesus, let us hear your voice today. Uh, blot me out, Lord. Set me aside and may what I say be only what you intend. Strengthen my mind and heart to do this, to proclaim your truth. And we commit ourselves to you and, and ask for this help now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's said that one of the most successful scams in history was supposedly carried out by a Scottish man named Arthur Ferguson. One summer morning in the 1920s, Ferguson stood in London's Trafalgar Square and watched a rather well-to-do American admiring the statue of Admiral Lord Nelson in the column that it rested on. Struck with a sudden inspiration, Ferguson uh, put his remarkable acting skills to work, convincing the American that the British government had huge outstanding debts from World War I and had approved the sale of Nelson's column, appointing him to conduct this secret transaction. The wealthy American purchased Nelson's column for about $30,000, lions included. Not one to rest on his achievements, Ferguson went on to sell Big Ben, the famous clock you recognize, uh, to yet another American tourist for $5,000. Ferguson went on to uh, uh, take $10,000 from yet another as down payment on Buckingham Palace. And according to this account, Ferguson sold the same buildings over and over again. In 1925, he came to the United States, where he managed to rent the White House to a cattle rancher for $100,000. <laughs> 
he was finally caught attempting to sell the Statue of Liberty to an Australian tourist. Uh, growing suspicious, the Australian contacted the police, finally arrested Ferguson, sentenced to five years in prison for fraud. Deception, like his, is taking place this very moment. Uh, of course, uh, some of it taking place in the public sector, but much of it coming from behind pulpits in churches across America. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, Now the Spirit expressly says, that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The air is thick with deception in these last days. For the past few Sundays, we've been studying Jude's description and warning about false teachers. But today, we see a shift in his focus. Beginning in verse 17, Jude shifts his attention from false teachers to followers of Christ. The focus is no longer false teachers, but how believers should live the Christian life in this atmosphere thick with deception. How? Do we follow, follow Christ amid false teaching? How do we follow Christ in these final days? What does uh, Christian living in this last age look like? That's the question that Jude answers in our passage this morning. In verses 17 through 25, Jude describes for us four aspects of Christian living. There are four aspects he lays out of following Christ in these final days. The first aspect that we come to is the setting for Christian living. Uh, uh, the setting, keep this in mind, Jude says, there will always be teachers in the last days. And he mentions three things in this setting. First, Jude summons believers to remember the predictions uh, the presence of these false teachers was foretold by the apostles. Verse 17 says, But you must remember, beloved. You must remember, uh, uh, Jude says, this remembering is not the kind of remembering you uh, have right before a test you study for, that you, re you, you cough up the facts about something and then completely forget what you just studied for and the test you took. This kind of remembering means taking something not just to mind, but taking it to heart, keeping it in mind, as we often say, keep in mind this. Keep in mind, he says, that the apostles warned you about these false teachers, as verse 17 continues. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that designation, apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, means that Jude is referring to the apostles, capital A apostles, official representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those men responsible for founding the New Testament church, uh, the authoritative witnesses of the gospel, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jude says these men warned you in advance that false teachers would arise and threaten the church. For example, Paul warned the elders on the beach at Miletus, the elders from Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Uh, I already clicked it. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Peter joins this chorus and says in 2 Peter 2, But false prophets also arose uh, among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. 
Keep this in mind, Jude says. Uh, Don't let it escape your thinking. The apostles warned you that this would happen. And so this is not really out of the ordinary. And we see, first of all, the predictions that the apostles made uh, in this setting. And the second thing we discover is the period of time that this will take place. Verse 18 says, They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers. Uh, The time period is the last time. And when exactly is that? Well, the apostles believed that the last time, uh, the last days, began with Christ's first coming. They believed that Christ's arrival on earth ushered in the last chapter of world history. Think of when the Holy Spirit came down in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, And recall that the disciples began to speak in foreign languages. Peter said on that occasion, but this, in other words, what you're seeing and hearing, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter is basically saying that's now, the last days is now. And then again, Peter says in the book of 1 Peter, he was foreknown, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest or made evident in the last times for the sake of you. So John MacArthur concludes, the technical phrase, the last time, refers to the period between Christ's first coming and second coming. We see the, secondly, the period of time in which Uh, these men would arise. They'll they'll be present the entire time. And then finally, the the third thing we see is the pattern. Once more, Jude is going to give us a flyover of what these men are like. Boy, he's been thorough, hasn't he? Uh, Beginning in verse uh, 4 or so, he's described these men at length. And this is just a quick summary of, of these men yet again. Uh, he, he gives us a pattern. First, Jude describes them as scoffers. Uh, he describes them as scoffers. Look in verse 18. In the last time there will be scoffers. They believed, these false teachers, believed that they were above the moral standards that applied to everyone else. You see, they, they had arrived, spiritually speaking. And so they, they ridiculed others in the church who weren't as advanced, don't miss the air quotes, advanced uh, as they were. And they they belittled them, made fun of them uh, as they pursued sensuality and sexual immorality. They, They were scoffers to begin with. And then as we go further, Jude tells us they were divisive. It says, it is these, in verse 19, it is these who cause divisions. Uh, The idea is to erect a wall between people. By this superior attitude, they're posturing. Uh, They're separating themselves. They're the elite, and they separate themselves from, from from the little people, the peons, the ordinary Christians, and they, after all, have arrived. They're not subject to the to the regulations that these people are called to to abide by. They are divisive. Lastly, it says here uh, on the pattern of these false teachers, Jude describes them as worldly. Uh, Look in verse 19 again, about the middle. It says, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. Worldly means natural, unspiritual, belonging to the world. And it's best explained by the next words in verse 19. Uh, Worldly people, devoid of the spirit. Uh, these men did not possess the Holy Spirit, and I hope you understand what that means. They're not believers. Anyone without possession of the Holy Spirit does not know Christ. How can I say something like that? It's because the Bible says it. Uh, Romans 8 9, a very important passage in this regard. If you, you haven't marked that out somehow, you should. Because Romans 8 9 says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In other words, you're not an unbeliever, but you're a believer. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, 
anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, like these men here, who are devoid of the Spirit, this says they do not belong to him. So in the clearest possible terms, Jude informs us that these false teachers operate by worldly principles because they're not believers and don't possess the Spirit. This is the third thing he says, their pattern, uh, their, their mode of operation. And this is just in addition to all the other things he's mentioned in the, in the verses above this. So this is the setting. Keep this in mind. This will be going on. It's going on now. Uh, there will always be false teachers in the last days. And we've seen the, the apostles' predictions and the time period and the pattern of their behavior. Well, why should this come in our time? Why should I be bothered? Why can't we just coast? And why are we always called to be contending for the faith? I understand the urge to have it easy, but uh, 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 an ancient writer named Thomas Akempis said this, Christ was despised on earth by men, and in his greatest need amid insults was abandoned by those who knew him and by friends. And you dare to complain of anyone? Christ had his adversaries and slanders. And you wish to have everyone as friends and benefactors? How will your patience win its crown if it has encountered nothing of adversity? Uh, remember, Jesus said, if the world hates me, it will also hate you. And so if you're everybody's bud, then something might not be right. We must encounter adversity. It's promised to us in the word. But that's the setting. Our question is, how do we live the Christian life in this setting? That's what this part of Jude is about. And some think this is the whole point of what he was trying to get to, living the Christian life in the last days. And so we want to go on and, and see the second aspect, and that's the strategy for Christian living. It's not enough to criticize false teachers, to point out the errors in their teaching and warn people of the dangers in following them. Believers must also grow spiritually. And Jude, in these next verses, gives us brief but clear instructions on living the Christian life in the last days. This is his if you will, his quick start guide on following Christ amid false teaching. And there are four parts to his strategy, four very simple uh, but important parts, building blocks, if you will. The first part of his strategy involves building. Look at verse 20 in your copy of God's Word. But you, beloved... Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Your most holy faith might raise a question in your mind. What is that? It's the same faith that Jude said was delivered to believers up in verse 3. If you'd flip a page or scroll up to verse 3, look at what Jude says there. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing you to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Your most holy faith refers to this faith, the objective content of the Christian life, the, the teaching that the apostles handed down uh, to believers, the teaching that forms the New Testament scriptures. Uh, one scholar says when Jude spoke of faith here, he referred to the body of teachings, the doctrine of the church of Christ. Building yourself up in your most holy faith implies that we're called to study this apostolic teaching and grow in our understanding of this teaching or the faith. This is the very thing Peter calls for in 1 Peter 2. He says, like 
newborn babes long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Boy, if I've put this verse up here once, I've put it up a thousand times. Have you kept count, Carolyn, how many times you've seen this verse on a Sunday morning? And then this from 2 Peter 3, but grow in the great but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Listen. You can't rest on your laurels. You can't be stagnant in your Walk with Jesus Christ. You're called to grow, and your understanding of Scripture is called to grow. And as we grow in our understanding of Scripture, we grow in our understanding and our communion with Christ Jesus and our fellowship with the Father. Jude, his strategy involves building, growing in our understanding of God's Word, a foundational building block of living the Christian life. If you've never heard it before, you've heard it from me, and if you've heard it from me once, you've heard it a million times. I'll stop exaggerating now. You must grow in your understanding of God's Word. It's like um, what they say uh, with agents of the Department of the, of the Treasury um, who also who deal, of course, with counterfeit bills. When they train a, a federal agent uh, in the Department of the Treasury, they do not sit them down in front of phony uh, bills to show them what these phony bills look like. They don't select a batch of $100 bills. I believe the most commonly counterfeited bill is the $100 bill. And, and they don't have these men study these counterfeits. What do they put in front of them? They put in front of them an actual, true, and genuine $100 bill. And they study it and study it and learn all the secret marks of the, of the $100 bill. And they feel the paper. So when they, they come across a counterfeit, they're able to recognize it instantly. Uh, they don't need to go check their guidebook because they know what the real thing is. That's why we are enjoined and summoned to this very first part of his strategy, building up your most holy faith, growing in your understanding of Scripture. There's a second part of his strategy, of course. It's praying. Again, wow, stating the obvious? Yes, probably so. But this is what Jude says in verse 20. As we come to the middle of that verse, Jude says this, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit means to pray in or with or by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul said something very similar to this in Ephesians 6, that portion about the armor of God. He said they're praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. It's praying with the power of uh, of the Spirit. And the reason that prayer is a crucial part of Jude's strategy is because you and I will not overcome false teaching uh, by winning arguments or by debate. Uh, I, I have sat across the table from uh, uh, Jehovah's Witness with another person who used to attend New Covenant and uh, we talked ourselves blue in the face to this guy, and uh, I don't think a thing got through uh, to his mind. He had all the, he had, he had heard many of these arguments before, had been in, uh, prepared to counter him. It was obviously the Spirit of God uh, uh, was not then quickening him to hear the word. We will not counter. Uh, overcome false teaching and, and the spiritual attack that comes with it through argument and debate. The way we resist and overcome false teaching is through prayer because prayer is a spiritual weapon and has great power as we pray. Paul reveals this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 
For though we walk in the flesh, and here flesh is not your sin nature, your flesh is humanly speaking. We are in our bodies, physical bodies. We are not waging war according to the flesh or according to human uh, uh, things. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And so we're called to pray in the power of the Spirit, asking Him to give us discernment between truth and error, to give sight to blind eyes, to illumine darkened hearts, and to shine in the darkness so that others may glimpse the glory of God in the face of Christ. Second part of Jude's strategy is praying in the power of the Spirit. Third, he goes on to say uh, keeping is part of the strategy. We find that in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Uh, What does it mean to keep yourself in the love of God? Does it just mean thinking about the love of God over and over? Well, fortunately, Jesus defines it for us quite clearly in John chapter 15. In John 15, Jesus mentions this explicitly. He says there, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Or Jesus' way of saying, uh, keeping yourself in the love of God. goes on to say, just as I have kept my Father's commandment, and abide in His love. And Jesus defines it again in John 14, the chapter right before this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. The way we do this keeping that Jude mentions, thirdly, keeping ourselves in the love of God, the way we remain in His love is, is as Christ says, by keeping His Commandments. One pastor illustrates it like this. He writes, My daughter Hannah and I had a great name named Samson that we dearly loved. And Samson, as it turns out, was well named. For he was big and strong and muscular, and like his namesake, he also had a penchant for wandering. We built fences. We tried chains and dog runs. We tried everything to keep Samson at home, but he'd dig under the fence or climb over it, and it drove us to distraction. So we bought the best-selling book on the market on the subject of training dogs called No Bad Dogs, written by a famous British dog trainer named Barbara Woodhouse, who raises Great Danes herself. One night when I went upstairs to tug in Hannah, she had a sad expression on her face and she said, Dad, I know what Samson's real problem is. Let me read you this paragraph. This is what she read me out of No Bad Dogs by Barbara Woodhouse. In a dog's mind, a master or mistress to love, honor, and obey is an absolute necessity. The love is dormant in the dog until brought into full bloom by an understanding owner. Thousands of dogs appear to love their owners. They welcome them home with enthusiastic wagging of the tail. My dog won't even do that. (laughs) She doesn't even look up from her her nap. Always napping. Uh, Wagging of the tail and jumping up. They follow them about their houses happily. And to the normal person seeing the dog, the affection is true and deep. But to the experienced trainer, this outward show is not enough. The true test of real love takes place when the dog has got the opportunity to go out on its own as soon as the door is left open by mistake, and it goes off and doesn't return home for hours. That dog loves only its home comforts and the attention it gets from its family. It doesn't truly love the master or mistress as they fondly think. True love in dogs is apparent when a door is left open and the dog still stays happily within earshot of its owner, for the owner must be the be-all and end-all of a dog's life. And this pastor concludes, 
The real test of our Christianity isn't seen in our work or activity or even in our theological purity. It's found in this. When we have an opportunity to wander away, to disobey, to leave His presence, do we choose instead to stay close to Him, to abide in Christ, to obey? I'm glad you're here today. I'm delighted to see you. But big deal. Everybody in the South, almost everybody, goes to church. You're doing, you're at least fulfilling in some people's mind a social obligation, but big deal. How about keeping yourselves in the love of God by following Christ's commands when nobody's looking? Uh, It's not just true with dogs, it's true with us. He who has my commandments and keeps them, Christ says, he it is who loves me, John 14, 21. This is the third part of of his strategy uh, for living the Christian life. One more part is waiting. uh, Waiting uh, for the return of Christ. This, This comes in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Here we go, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This this word means eagerly waiting. Uh, One version says waiting anxiously. And, And the idea is we're sitting on the edge of our seats, so to speak, waiting for the return of Christ. And then this mercy that he speaks of refers to our our final salvation, our final redemption at Christ's return. We're not to set our hope or our affections on the things of this world as, as the false teacher, teachers did, as, as he calls them, worldly men, devoid of the Spirit. We're to set our hope on eternal things, the, the return of Christ, the world to come. Listen to Peter express this in 1 Peter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Waiting for Christ and His appearing. This is His strategy for living in these last days. His, his uh, strategy for following Christ uh, among, amid false teaching. Uh, he gives us four elements in His strategy. Building yourself up in the Word of God praying in the power of Spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God, keeping Christ's commands, and waiting, fixing our eyes on the return of Christ and our, and our hope in heaven. He goes on. He's got something else to say. He's not finished yet. We've seen the, uh, the setting of Christian living, and, and here we've seen the strategy, the quick start guide to living in these last days. He goes on to present a third aspect of of this, and that's the spread of Christian living. Uh, as, As vital as it is to grow in our faith, what we just talked about, uh, we're also called to spread our faith abroad and share it with those around us. We dare not become ingrown, but continue to reach out to those around us affected by false teaching. As Steve Lawson likes to say, evangelize or fossilize. And he calls us to spread the truth to three groups of people here uh, in this next section, verse 22. First, we're called to share the truth with the skeptic. Uh, This refers to those who are the least influenced by false teachers. Look at verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Mercy, the same thing that we're waiting for to receive from Christ, is compassion, uh, kindness or concern uh, to someone in serious need. And in this case, you and I are called to show this kindness on those who doubt, who waver, who have begun to question And ask if these false teachers might not be correct after all. 
Who do I believe? Do I believe my elders, who I've, I've known for a, admittedly an awfully long time, they've always told me the truth, but what these men have come in and started saying is, is so attractive. This is the group we're called to share the truth with, the skeptic. I want you to notice what Jude doesn't say here. Uh, you go-getters need to hear this. Jude doesn't tell us to bring the hammer down on this group. He does not encourage us to have a come-to-Jesus meeting with those who are wavering. And, and this is consistent with what the rest of Scripture tells us to do in this regard. Paul says in Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should corner him and have a come-to-Jesus meeting. It's fascinating. Uh, this is the opposite of what we do. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then Paul says again to this kind of person, the skeptic, rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And finally, Paul says to Timothy this very thing, as the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. I know many pastors, and occasionally I fall into this at times, uh, who are indeed quarrelsome. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, must not go around having all kinds of come-to-Jesus meetings with people, must not go around getting in people's faces, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Look at this, correcting his opponents with gentleness. doesn't mean without firmness, firmly, but still with gentleness. This is how we're called to spread truth to those who are under the influence of false teaching, to correct them in a gentle way, to have mercy on those who are wavering. From here we go on to a group that's more under the influence of false teaching. That's the, the straying. We see this second category as, uh, as Jude goes on in verse 23. He says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Jude's use of the word save as well as the image of the fire of, of God's judgment reveals to us this person is, is only a nominal Christian, a Christian in name only. They've heard the word of God in the assembly. They've fellowshiped with believers in the body. They've been swayed by false teachers who have entered the church. This is the skeptic who has, who has given in. And they've participated with this false teaching so much so that their salvation is in question. They're, they've been influenced by the sensuality and immorality of these men, these, these elite so to speak, and, and, and their profession of faith in Christ is, is in doubt. And this group, Jude says, share the good news about Christ all over again. Save them. Tell them what they're headed for if they don't turn from sin and surrender their lives to Christ. This too, of course, is not done with angry eyebrows. This too is done with a spirit of gentleness and grace. Paul says uh, in Colossians, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. So to the skeptic, the straying, and then the third group that he addresses is the stained those who have bought hook, line, and sinker into false teaching. This may, in fact, some believe, might include some of the false teachers as well. They've been deeply ensnared and stained by sin. Verse 23 goes on to say, 
to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Again, uh, the answer to these people is not a is not shaking a sign in their face or 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 spittle flying as you confront them uh, with their condition. We're not called to hate those ensnared by sin. A news flash, perhaps, to some of us. Again, we're called to show mercy, have compassion, and show kindness and concern for someone in this serious need. This person, perhaps the most serious need of all. Only this time, we're, we're called to show mercy with with great care. Look at what he says. Show mercy with fear. Hating even the garments stained by the flesh. This fear and caution come from knowing that we too can be ensnared and stained by the same sin. Take nothing for granted as you talk to people, Jude says. Watch yourself because you are liable to succumb to the same thing, the corruption and defilement that accompanies sexual immorality. We're called to hate that, to hate the corruption it always brings. Paul issues this very same warning in Galatians 6. We looked at part of the verse earlier. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And one scholar, Bible scholar, comments like this, they are to have pity upon even the most abandoned heretic. Wow. We could probably just say amen and go home chewing on that sentence. They are to have pity upon even the most abandoned heretic. But to exercise great care while getting alongside him, lest they themselves become defiled. They are to retain their hatred of sin even as they love the sinner. These are the people most affected by false teaching. Maybe even some of those who are actually teaching false things. The stained. Have mercy on the stained, but be careful. This is the spread of Christian living. And again, I want to show you the connection that that Uh, Jude has talked about the strategy for Christian living in this last age. And that is so vital. But we don't stop there because you're not meant to be a reservoir. You're meant to be a channel through which the truth of God flows. Uh, Of course, the best illustration is the Dead Sea. Uh, uh, water flows into the Dead Sea, but there is, is no way it flows out. It just evaporates. We're not called to be the Dead Sea. We're called to be a a channel through which the truth of God flows. Yes, you must grow in your faith and follow the strategy Jude's laid out for us and, and continue to build your faith. You must not stop there because we must spread that truth beyond us to those who are under the snare and under the under the influence of false teaching. Well, there's one more thing Jude has to show us. Uh, The setting of Christian living, the the strategy for Christian living, the spread of Christian living. Finally, he gives us the strength for Christian living. And I don't know about you, but I'm asking myself, whoa, where does the strength to do this come from? Because Luke, Jude's instructions are, they're a tall order. How do we do this? Where do do we get the power to live and follow Jesus Christ in these last days? This is what Jude goes on to say. In these last two verses, he concludes with a doxology, which which is simply praise to God. May God be glorified. May God be praised. May God be highly honored for four attributes. He is able, first of all, and just to say, well, let's look at it. Now, to him who is able 
to keep you from stumbling. To, to simply say he's able is a, is a huge understatement because he's not merely able. God possesses all power, does he not? Good, thanks for that one, amen. <laughs> the Bible describes him as omnipotent, all-powerful. God is sufficient, God is powerful, able to do all things. Uh, and that includes keep us from stumbling. Look at your text. He's able to keep us from falling under the influence of false teaching. Earlier, Jude called us to keep ourselves in the love of God. <coughs> we are able to do that because we know God is keeping us. He started off his letter uh, back in verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for or by Jesus Christ. Kept by Jesus Christ. We are able to keep ourselves because God keeps us. Because Christ keeps us. It's not us holding his hand so much as his holding ours. And so this man says, Jude reminded his readers that God is able and willing to keep them from surrendering to apostasy. The false teachers threatened, but those who truly belong to the Lord will not capitulate. They will continue to be faithful until the end. God will keep you in the faith. Rest assured, friend, if you know Christ, you are kept by Him. And you are able to keep yourself as he calls us to because first of all, he's keeping you. Amen. And he's not just able to keep you from falling under the influence of false teaching. He's able to deliver us safely into his presence. Look at verse 24 uh, as it continues. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, that's great, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Not only will he keep you from stumbling, he will present you or make you stand Blameless. That is a term used with sacrifices as lambs had to be blameless and spotless to be accepted by God. This refers to a, 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 our final salvation when we are before Him cleansed from all sin. As sin has been removed from us and we're, we enjoy our final redemption and it says we will stand before the presence, literally, uh, before the face of His glory. And this will be an occasion with great joy. Oh my goodness, I remember the last paper I wrote at Dallas Seminary. It was 26 pages long. It was on who wrote the book of Second Peter. The conclusion is, Peter dictated it to some dude, and he wrote it down while he was sitting in front of Peter. Uh, that's incredible, right? I, I walked to seminary 20 minutes away, sat down to enjoy my morning coffee in the student center, and realized I left the thing sitting in my printer at home. I had to walk back and get it. So I was walking home, a bird used the toilet on my head. <laughs> I was never so delighted to turn a paper in in my whole life. It was done. Last paper I ever wrote at Dallas Seminary. My fifth year, that's right, I crammed four years into five. <laughs> It was over. And can you imagine the day when 
you will be there. And the uh, indwelling sin will be removed because we've enjoyed our final redemption. Our salvation will be fully complete. And this Greek term, this precious Greek term, before the face of, will come true. And we'll say, it's done. And that will be an occasion of great joy, won't it? All the slogging along the path of righteousness will be over. And we'll be there. Uh, Jude, tell us. Not just kept from stumbling, but delivered there spotless before our God and before the Lord Jesus seated on his throne. Not only is he able, he is further the only God. He goes on to say uh, in verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our God is the only one who saves, unlike the false gods of the ancient world and the false deities uh, of this world, uh, which is fame and career and entertainment. God alone is the one who saves through Jesus, His Son. He said this to the Pharisees in John 5, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek glory that comes from the only God? And Paul writes to Timothy, to the king of the ages, immortal and visible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He is the only God who saves. Further, uh, Jude, I keep wanting to say Luke. If I've said Luke, I meant Jude today. Uh, Jude continues, he is majestic. Uh, as verse 25 goes on, uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty. Majesty is the quality uh, of someone that, that uh, inspires awe in you and reverence in you. This is referring to God's kingly majesty, His stateliness because of His extremely exalted position as God overall. He is worthy of the greatest honor. So Jude says, may God be glorified because He is majestic. And then the fourth attribute, because He is sovereign. As it continues, uh, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, those those two terms share similar meanings. Uh, combined, they indicate that God has complete control over the world and directs all things. This is what Spurgeon's catechism was about. Listen, if you don't, I, I pray that you believe this to be true about God, this thing that we're talking about. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are... His eternal purpose, according to the counsel of His own will, where for His own glory, He has foreordained whatever happens. I hope that you can grasp that and cling to it with all your heart because it is a foundation of peace, peace of mind. And again, those supporting verses from Ephesians 1, it's not just because Spurgeon said so, uh, it's because the Word of God said so, as, as it says, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. It's not just Paul who wrote that. God the Holy Spirit breathed that through the Apostle Paul. God said that. Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. I've asked you before, I wonder what all things includes. That's a trick question. So many great confessions where people summarize Christian truth. There's one called the Westminster Confession of Faith, very well known. The London Baptist Confession puts it like this, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely 
and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. He was sovereign before time began. As it says, be dominion and authority before all time, before the world was created, and now, and forever. God is eternally sovereign. He has always been sovereign. He is sovereign now. Perhaps the thing we have the most difficulty with, sovereign over this mess? Yes. He has uh, freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Do we understand that? Of course not. Uh, we trust Him that He is working all things for His glory and our good. And he will always be sovereign. Believer, sink your teeth into this. It is the richest and juiciest piece of meat I can think of from Scripture. Give it a good chew and work it out in, in your life and what that means for, for how your children have turned out or, or how your job is going or for what's going on with your automobile, or for this thing. Is God sovereign over all these things that you think are... Yes, He is. He is. And we can trust Him. I know that some of it is difficult. I have ridden that train myself. But He is sovereign. This is how, where we find the strength to live the Christian life in these last days. It's through our great God that Jude says to us is Abel, uh, who is the only God, who is incredibly majestic, and who rules all things. He is sovereign. So, to avoid buying Big Ben... Uh, or some false doctrine that sounds fairly convincing. How do we live? Uh, how, how does Christian living in the last days, how do, what does that look like? And following Christ in this atmosphere thick with false teaching. Jude gives us four aspects of, of living in the last days in these verses, the setting of Christian living. False prophets will be here. And they are not going to go away, and they might get worse. The strategy is Jude boils it down to four things. It is his quick start guide to Christian living. And boy, they are great. Four basic things. But it doesn't stop there. We're called to spread it to those who are influenced by false teaching. And the strength for it all, uh, he brings us to the end, comes from our God who is able. This is uh, what Christian living in the last days looks like. Let's conclude in prayer as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning. So you are able, Father, to uh, drive your truth home into each heart here in each of the ways that your child needs to hear it. And one might need to apply more of one point and the other more of a different point. But whatever point we need your truth in this last section of Jude... Please, by your good spirit, drive the truth home into our hearts. And may it be evident in the way we live. Lord, for those who are anxious and fretting this morning, and there's probably a bunch. Um, we don't like the world situation. It makes us nervous. But, Father, your sovereignty, your, your word says that you work all things according to the purpose of your will. You are behind it eventually, and you will cause it to produce good. 
And help us to believe that and trust you, that you are a good God who works for the good of his people. And if we know a co-worker who's been sucked into false teaching, let us apply that part and, and let us gently present the truth to this person so that they can hear and, if need be, trust Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and turn away from false truth and, and hopes of wealth and prosperity in this age. Jesus, if one of us is, is, is sucked into the wealth and prosperity of age and, and being distracted by that, Lord, help us to, to wait on Jesus, your Son, and His return, and let us set our hope in heaven, the glory to be revealed to us when Christ comes and uh, take our minds off of this world. They, they do not satisfy us, and we will be disappointed. Lord, whatever point this word needs to take root in our hearts, please press that truth home to your children here before me and cause your, your word to multiply and bear fruit. And we ask you to do this, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.